I am joined as always by Mr. Anthony Tresh. We are talking top 10 returning offensive tackles in college football. Uh, Tresh, before we get going, how is uh, Cincinnati treating you right now? Um, it's treating me all right, I suppose. I mean, we're just finishing up the uh, college football preview, which we've talked a lot about already, but we're almost done coming out less than a week. But, you know, it's nice down here. It was actually cold a little bit this morning. So not so much the muggy uh, weather with all of those. The best part is we don't have those cicadas flying around everywhere anymore because those things were absolutely horrendous. Were they bad up there in your neck of the woods up in Canada? They didn't get uh, any cicadas whatsoever. Um, Consider yourself lucky because they're the most annoying things <laughs> on this planet. I had one. I, w- I had one go to the bathroom on me. One day it was the worst smelling thing I've ever heard. Like Ugh. dirt smell. Boy. It was horrible. When yeah, when Trudeau uh closed the border for uh for traveling, he he really did it so that the cicadas wouldn't come in. Um they know the rule, they need to stay in America. Okay, let's get into <laughs> offensive tackles. Uh and we'll start. We're gonna group them up in, in about three groups, basically. Uh so let's get number one, number two, number three. Uh, Thayer, I don't know if I pronounce his name, Thayer Thayer Munford from Ohio State. And then we got Darian Kennard from Kentucky and Evan Neal from Alabama. So what's your take on the, this kind of top tier of, of, of the top offensive linemen, offensive tackles? Yeah, I think my biggest, biggest takeaway from this top, you know, it was kind of interesting, difficult to pick a top guy, but I think I had to go with Thayer Munford just because what he did this past season was nothing short of exceptional from a pass protection standpoint. I mean, he went up against some really tough teams, you know, but he he was flawless. I mean, Michigan, Clemson, Alabama, he was excellent. And I thought what he did too, you know, when they're throwing a stunner blitz his way, I mean, he did, he was not letting anything past him at all whatsoever. Um, You know, you look at his pressure rate allowed, it was half a percentage point lower than any other power five left tackle last season, Um, allowed just three pressures over the course of the season, no sacks or hits on Justin Fields. I mean, he was just yeah as close to perfect as you possibly can being a left tackle for Ohio State. That's why he's a top spot there. And I was kind of also surprised at the backlash that, you know, people are like, Thayer Mumford, that guy's really number one. And I think a lot of thing is too, just because, you know, they're expecting someone, you know, maybe a little bit younger, not a super senior, but I mean, this guy's a little real deal. I mean, he's a well-oiled machine. Um, I think he's the best tackle in America. Okay. You brought up something about stunts and it's funny because I wrote this note down when watching uh, the two Ohio State players that we have in the top 10. We'll get to the other one later. But it was something that, you know, this was kind of like the last group. Uh, Ohio State was one of the last groups that I watched. And then it kind of made clear something that I've been thinking about in football for a while is that, especially in college, especially in college, there just are not a lot of one-on-ones tackle versus edge rusher anymore where it's like hey you know you know we know who's gonna battle it out before the snap and when the snap comes that edge rusher is gonna go and and try and beat the, the, that offensive tackle you know to get to the quarterback like you just don't see that that much and a lot of it has to do with okay well when are we dropping back to pass you know in like a non-play action non-screen non-rpo way it's really just on third down now you just don't see it that much on first and second down. So then when we get to third down, well, here come defenses with all these stunts and pressures. And, and I think the game, and we both remember this game very well, is, is the Indiana game where, all, you know, Ohio State's playing Indiana and it's just nonstop 
pressure from different players. The safety, they blitz the safety, they blitz the nickel, they blitz everybody, you know, up the middle and, and trying to create an advantage that way rather than saying, hey, we're going to go and play one-on-one. And it's going to be a situation where the best player is going to win. It's like, no, we don't want to get in that situation. And a lot of defenses are, are, are taking that route. We don't want to get in that situation. Now, I think the SEC is probably a little bit different because they feel like they probably have the horses there at, at edge to say, hey, we can go one-on-one and we can go we can go beat tackles. And you know, we don't have to stun and we don't have to like install a million things. We can just say, hey, we're four down and we can go rush the quarterback. But yeah, that was something that I noticed while watching the offensive lineman. It was just like, you're just, there's just not a lot of pure clean one-on-one, especially on the outside. Yeah, exactly. When you look at a guy too, like Darian Kennard, who's number two there. I mean, it's his pass protection is really not that great, but you look at what he can do in the run game. And that's why he came in there at number two. Um, you know, he did, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how he kind of fares in this new, you know, pro style offense that they're going to run there in Kentucky. They're kind of changing things a bit at what they've had in the past. Um, but you know, his zone blocking was, it was some of the best in all of college football. I mean, he just was constantly wrecking guys, six foot five, 345 pounds, just you know, mauling them. Um, key instrumental guy in that rushing attack too. And Evan Neal, um, we, this guy's another unit, six foot seven, 360 pounds. And I mean, he moves, you know, pretty well, you know, with his strength too, um, the length that he, he had some of the most big time blocks we've ever seen in a single season at the power five level. Um, you know, those two guys, you know, maybe not have the most well-polished data set, but you got to consider where they're coming from in the sec, you know, and I think that's also a concern too. You know, you've heard us with Pene Sewell saying, you know, he, he's going to be a, a, probably an elite tackle, but you know, I don't think it's going to be a slam dunk possibly right away at the NFL level, just because you look at what he was facing, yep. you know, in the pac 12, it was not that great too. And also it was a screen city over there in Oregon. I mean, it was just constant, you know, the best edge rusher he went up against um, was probably in practice against Kayvon Thibodeau. So, you know, it, situations like that, I think don't get talked about enough when we're talking about evaluating offensive linemen. And that's why when you hear, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but like me, if I'm ever talking about offensive linemen, always look up the true pass sets, always talk about the true pass sets because those are the most important factors of looking at these guys. So one of the things I wrote down with, with Evan Neal, and I think this plays into the competition level that you see in the SEC versus other conferences, is um, what ends up happening is, so I write down you know, a lot of good things, a lot of positive things, but my negative was like balance. Like sometimes, you know, with some speed guys, you can get out of his feet, can get tangled up, and then he's lunging and stuff like that. But it's like, is if you put him in, a different conference, if you put him in the Big Ten, if you put him in the Pac-12, would I see those balance issues? Because he's not playing against these top-tier athletes who are making him sweat like that. Um, so I wonder, I you know, it kind of, kind of just hit me, but I, I wonder if that's the case. Whereas, you know, um, you talk about a guy like Kennard, who, yeah, he's, is he the greatest pass protector? No. But again, that level of competition is so high because he's playing in the SEC. So if you put him in a different conference, would he, you know, would his grades be better? Whether it's true pass set or otherwise, like would his grades be better on, on, on the passing side of things? So I think that's an interesting discussion. Um, and I agree with you with the Panay Sewell thing. It was like, he did everything you're supposed to do when you're going to be an elite player in the NFL at college, but there was no competition. You know what I mean? He made that bad competition look even worse 
but there was no competition. All right, so let's get to the next set. Um, Jamari uh, Sawyer from Georgia, uh, your boy Peter Skoronsky from Northwestern, and Jordan McFadden from Clemson. I thought that was your boy, Peter Skaronsky. I thought that was your, your top true freshman last season. Um, no, Jamari Salyer. I mean, I was, I was happy to see what he did this past season for Georgia because he was one of my biggest conviction breakout candidates. You know, this time last offseason, we were talking about who's going to break out. You know, you look at this guy, small sample size darling um, early on in his collegiate career, ended up becoming, you know, he, he held up his part. You know, in 2020, he could play anywhere along the offensive line. Um, he was very good in pass protection down the stretch for Georgia um, with an elite pass or pass block rate over his last few games. Um, and two, when he was went up against Cincinnati, went over to left guard, held his own against a pretty stiff, uh, you know, competition there. Uh, so Jamari Salyer comes in there at number four. Peter Skaronsky, um, you know, he didn't really have, you know, he's an interesting one too because we're talking about the, the competition level because you look at his season, you take out that Ohio State game. Yeah, he had nearly a perfect year, but then you put up, you watch that Ohio State game, you're like, this guy's a top 10 tackle. Um, you know, you could see the tools there for him to be special. And what he did still outside of that Ohio State game was special because he, like I said, was nearly flawless. But then when he went up against the Buckeyes, they made him look like the true freshman that he was last season for Northwestern. Um, but I'm very bullish on his future. I think he is one of those guys that could, you know, break out to elite status just because, again, no matter what the competition level is, you know, over the duration of the entire season, it's really rare to see a tackle perform at the level that he did, you know, as a true freshman, you don't typically see that in the power five there. Um, and then Jordan McFadden, um, you know, taking on a full-time role there, he performed exceptionally well there Did again, falter against some of the, you know, premier edge rushers in the ACC. Um, and last year that was probably the most difficult, you know, conference. And when it came to edge defenders, I mean, it was just littered from top to bottom. And that's what makes Christian Darisol's year last year so much more special when you could you look at what kind of pass rush these, uh, some of these guys were going up against. But he rounds out there at uh, number six. Yeah, my thing with Skaronsky is like young. You could tell he's young. And I think that he could even get better just because I looked at him and I thought, here's a guy who needs to – maybe I'm looking too far into it, but he needs to – start doing some yoga, you know, start doing some, like <laughs> some, you know, d division one strength training where he can get some flexibility in him and, and that'll, cause he's, he's strong, you know, he's a bull, he's gonna, he can anchor, he can do all that good stuff. Um, but I think with time, you know, you're taking a guy who is already uh, very good and you put him in, 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 in an elite strength program and, and, have him understand technique more with hand usage. I think that's where, uh, I think that's where he can, he could just be, he could be tremendous. I think, you know, true fresh, true freshman, right? I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I mean, he came in there tremendous. for Rashawn Slater. Wasn't yeah. even supposed to, wasn't even supposed to be the guy. It was supposed to be Rashawn Slater's job. And he came in, you know, everyone was expecting a pretty big decline and, you know, granted in that Ohio state game, certainly missed him. But at the end of the day, he held his own over the course of the year. Uh, I, I wonder, I feel like I don't want to project forward too negatively, but I just feel for him because we just saw Northwestern have a great season, right? Going to the Big Ten championship game. Northwestern has that type of season. It feels like 
once every five years where it's like, oh my God, Northwestern's out of nowhere. They have this really good team. So I feel bad because he had it, Skronsky had it in his first year and it, it's, it might not it's be, be so good. It might not be so good going forward. He's obviously a good player though. All right. Uh, next group, um, Jack Snyder, San Jose State, Dylan Parham, Memphis, and Nicolas Petitfrère, Ohio State. I mean, that was I I'm, sure, I don't, I'm sure he doesn't go as Nicolas Petitfrère, but I, I'll call him that. I don't think he does, but I was <laughs> impressed with the accent. We can call him that um, because it sounds better. But um, yeah, Jack Snyder, San Jose State, um, our top group of five guy um, among this group. And it was kind of tough. It's offensive linemen is very tough to rank power five and group of five together just because it's a whole other ball game than some it's, of these conferences. <laughs> It's hell. I mean, you, know, you put on the earlier. tape, you put on the San Jose tape and the Memphis tape after watching, you know, uh, Bama and, and Clemson and all these teams. And it's just like a totally different world. Exactly. I mean, even too, like we were saying earlier, you compare the PAC 12 to the SEC, that's a completely different world too. I mean, it is drastically different. So it is a little bit tougher to rank these guys. Um, but I put Jack Snyder there at number seven, just because I was very impressed at the growth that we saw from him this past season. Um, you know, he had a great above 88.0 as both a pass and run blocker in route to one of those elite marks above 90.0 that we talk about, um, you know, from a true pass set perspective, um, his play strength, I thought took a completely 180, you know, he looked, you know, he was not holding his own before last season. He was doing that this past year. Um, and so that's why we put him there at number seven and then Dylan Parham too. You know, I was impressed him moving from guard to tackle and he actually elevated his play was, you know, fantastic. And what kind of sold me too, um, you know, when he faced Cincinnati, he performed at a very high level, you know, he did not falter and that Cincinnati pass rushes, you know, it's, that's not a normal group of five passers. That's, that's a grown man pass rush of power better than a, most of the power five programs. Um, and so that's what sold me on those two. Um, Nicholas Petit Ferrer. Um, I can't, I can't get the accent on there. Like you can, um, he's another one too. He's, he has more of like the recruiting, you know, pedigree and background. Um, you know, he did, I was very concerned, you know, with him and Thayer Munford, I was very concerned with these two kind of entering the year, just because we hadn't seen enough from them to think that they were going to be the guys. And when the time came for them to face Penn state, if I recall correctly, it might've been the second game of the season for them. Um, Shaka, Tony, um, Jason, now Odafe, Owe, um, you know, I was very concerned with those two, just because you look at Nicholas Petitfrere, especially, um, that first game, the one start he had back in 2019 against Northwestern, it was really bad. I mean, concerningly bad, like a liability level bad. Um, but those two held their own, the same thing, you know, with Petitfrere as their Munford over the course of the season. Um, you know, he really did hold his own until the time came to face Alabama. Thayer Munford was really the only one that kind of, you know, had a clean performance there. He did struggle a little bit, but again, it is Alabama. You, I mean, they, they have some freaks on that defensive line um, and it could have been much worse. A lot of people would have been much worse. Uh, some guy who popped out to me while watching, I think Jamari Salier is number four from Alabama. I think Chris Allen's his name. I don't know if he, he doesn't grade very well, but he gave, he gave some problems to, to Sawyer. And he's a really interesting player. Uh, okay. Uh, Ohio state. So we know the tackle play is going to be good. We know the receiver play is I'm, I'm, I'm getting bigger picture here. We know the receiver play is going to be good. So the two issues that we, that we, that we don't know about, I think is going to quarterback, obviously that remains to be seen, but I think, 
The other thing is probably interior offensive line. Now they lose. <laughs> We're going to fill this in later when I remember his name. Why uh, Davis. Davis. And there were issues there on the offensive line in the middle, right? We remember this. Right. And we just talked about it in the, the Indiana game. They're, they're getting pressure from all kinds of places. Even when, even when Indiana was not even trying to get pressure, they were getting pressure up the middle. I feel like that's something that will just, it's not, it can't be as bad. It just can't be as bad because there were, there were so many, whether they were schematic bust or mental bust, like that just won't happen again. So, you know, that's when I was watching the, the Ohio state guys, I was like, man, this team, even with a new quarterback and that quarterback will probably not be as good as 2020 and even 2019 Justin Fields, but it might not matter because the, because a big 10 and then B the talent there on that offense is so disgusting. Like I, I, it might, they're, they're going to be good again. Like I know, no Justin Fields, but everything else around him is really good. Okay. The two, well, well, yeah, too. And they also had to, you know, move some guys around. Like remember that Michigan state game when they had to put Harry Miller at center and it was, the snapping was absolutely horrendous. I mean, Justin Fields was had, he could not get a clean snap to save his life. I mean, yeah, I mean, like we had, you know, we put out on social, I, I was asked, you know, top five offensive linemen or, or offensive lines returning in college football. I put Ohio State uh, number two, and it's mostly because of that tackle duel. Also, yeah. I think, you know, I don't think we're going to see any, that interior offensive line get any worse. I think it's going to be more just exactly. kind of a, a, more of an average group. I mean, when you have those two elite, you know, clear-cut best tackle duo in college football there too, they're the second best offensive line. Like you said, there's just so much talent there. I think the big concern you know, nothing on the offense. I think CJ Stroud's going to come in. I think he's going to perform very well. I mean, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody. It's more the secondary just because it last year, it was definitely the worst secondary of the PFF college era. I mean, it wasn't the best in America, as I said, the BIA at all whatsoever. I think seven banks, he definitely has the tools to be the guy to lead the group. Um, but we, you know, we thought the same thing about Sean Wade. He struggled seven banks struggled last season. He, I mean, I think that's going to be, that's really the big X factor of that team. Yeah, went off on a tangent there, but um, okay. I'll get to just the, the two um, the two group of five guys, and it's kind of what we were talking about is they're not big, and their whole like the whole offensive line of San Jose State not very big. The funny thing about turning on the Memphis tape for Parham was, you know, I didn't know which you know I I put it on, and then I didn't know which whether he was a left tackle or right tackle and they have a pretty big left tackle. I think it's 77, the big dude. Oh, so he's, like, oh. um, he's at a TCU now. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm like, I'm like, ah, oh, that's, that must be part. Like that's gotta be part, right? Like I, if I'm top, we're talking about a top 10 offensive lineman, that's, that must be him. And then it turns out he's the other guy. He's the right tackle and he's really small, but he's super athletic. Um, you know, you can see him on some, on some bull rushes and get walked back a bit. But other than that, it was, it was really elite play from him. So um, yeah, let's get to the next group, which is actually just one player, but a guy that I think we both uh, really liked. And that's Ikem Ekwanu from NC state. Um, for me, it was just a guy who like, I thought technically was really sound and very patient in his, in his kickstep and, uh, just, just shut everybody down. And, and like you said, the ACC, it might not be the SEC, but it's a very good pass rushing conference. So I was really excited watching the tape from, uh, Equanu. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think a big thing for me, like why he was kind of there is just because of the run blocking. I mean, he was just a nasty run blocker. I mean, he fit that system. Well, I, you know, I think NC state, they're a very interesting group just because it's mostly just, you know, guys that can just maul in the run game. And that's, you know, you know what he could do. And I I think, you know, when we were talking to like, you know, projecting him to the next level, he's going to be a guard more than likely. Um, but, you know, I'm really excited about seeing what he does. I mean, this past season, one of the five highest grade run blockers, 91.2 mark, and his first season starting to an 85.0 run block rate, which is really rare to see. Um, and, you know, he also got that mark this past season, spending some time um, at guard and tackle. Um, so, you know, I, I'm curious to see how he's going to kind of end up. The Cincy State offense is kind of intriguing to me. I know we've talked about it just a little bit. Um, it'll be interesting to see how kind of Devin Leary fares just because he did have a small sample and he was, he was pretty decent in that, you know, they have the receiving unit there. They have the offensive line. Um, we'll see if they can put piece something together, maybe be, I, I wouldn't say, you know, anything like America's team Cinderella story, but they could be a trap team. They have the, they have the pieces in place to be that kind of group. All right. There you have it. Top 10 returning offensive tackles in college football. You know where else you can find this same discussion, but on paper form? <laughs> you can find it in the College Football Preview magazine that comes out June 28th, um, headed by, by the two people who you're listening to right now. So uh, go check that out. Uh, we will talk about it again uh, next Monday when we go through the interior offensive line rankings. All right, Tresh, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. DraftKings Sportsbook is giving you a chance to lower the over-under on a featured playoff game. Uh, That's probably the only way I would ever win a bet. All players who place a bet on the featured basketball game will have a hand in lowering the over-under on the game. That's right. For every 1,500 players who bet the over on the select game, the over-under will drop by one point. Uh, DraftKings is safe and secure and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code PFF when you sign up to hammer the over. For every 1,500 people that bet the over in the feature game, the line will decrease by one point. Yes, this is your chance to improve the odds of the over hitting. So tell your friends and family this is a team effort. Hammer the over and improve your odds of doubling your money. That's promo code PFF for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, Pennsylvania only. Restrictions apply. Max $25 wager. One per customer. Offer ends May 23rd, 2021. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. In these uncertain times, life is full of questions like, when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them. Backed by over 130 years of experience, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. I want you guys to remember that if you are listening to this uh, PFF podcast, we have other great podcasts on our 
PFF Podcast Network, which covers, of course, the NFL, fantasy football, and this show, College. So uh, you can recap the NFL Draft with PFF Mike and PFF Austin on Two for One Drafts, um, probably one of the best podcasts out there, in my opinion. You can check out Ian Harditz fantasy football podcast and get a leg up on your league i'm gonna need it next year because i finished very poorly uh, last season in fantasy football and get all your 2021 betting content with the pff forecast another great great podcast so um a lot of podcasts on the network make sure you tune into all of them okay we are now joined by connor mcquiston uh, the um, so-called so-called by himself analytics star um from who also writes for Coast to Coast Scouting to talk to us about um, recruiting and in a very unique way, in a way that we haven't really talked about it before, because Connor, you're like one of the few people that I know who is doing kind of recruiting analytics um, for college football. So I'm just curious, let's, let's start off. Like how do you, does one get into wanting to scrape two, four sevens data and figure out, uh, you know, who's getting the best recruits? Uh, so it started out by, I was, so, uh, so I go to Michigan, I go to the university of Michigan. I graduate in December, uh, which is a semester early, not late, but, uh, so there's the, so there's the, so like the NFL has NFL fast start, this public R package. That's where you see the graphs on Twitter. That's usually where people get their data from. Uh, so the analog to that in college football was a CFB scrape R now it's CFB fast start. But at the time, it was before uh, my second, uh, before second semester this year in Michigan, so before winter semester. I was just bored, and I saw that we had this recruiting stuff, so I thought it'd be a fun time to make maps. Uh, so then I started making maps, and then someone else made a shiny app, uh, like a little web applet saying like, oh, where where different, uh, like where different schools were getting their recruits from, and I had had that idea, and I was kind of bitter that uh, that he did it first. So I, so I did it instead. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Uh, well, honestly, it's, it's really the, your, your Twitter feed, you're producing some really interesting stuff and, and your articles that you're writing on coast to coast scouting are, uh, are fascinating. Honestly, they're fascinating. Um, so let's, let's um, get into it uh, right away. Um, I'm going to guess you a very broad question right now. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> How is climate change affecting recruiting? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, first, let's let's say okay. I, I gotta. I don't believe in climate change. Okay. So this uh, is just. I get this entirely from your writing, your liberal writing. I don't believe yes. in it one bit. <laughs> uh, the uh, the lizards at the top of society just fed this misinformation to my. Head. I'm I'm a lost cause, and I'm sorry. But under this lost cause, uh, so the reason climate change is kind of a big deal in recruiting. And for the, for the listeners that aren't familiar with my work, which is probably most of you, um, a lot of what I've done, uh, especially in my writing, is what I've done is I basically look, looked at a specific uh, metro, metropolitan areas, say, okay, how is the recruit, what are the dyna- like underlying dynamics going on in these different areas? It's so like, what are, what's the migration change? Are people moving in or out? Uh, is there some sort of economic policy moving in that will make people want to move here? All sorts of stuff like that. Is it warm? And climate change plays into this, obviously, uh, because ocean levels are rising and storms are getting worse. So some places are less attractive. Uh, like in the last in the last article I wrote, uh, I brought I brought up uh, Virginia Beach and New Orleans in particular, uh, because New Orleans uh, and my, this is also affecting Miami. Uh, but New Orleans, I think the average elevation is like a foot. A lot of it's under sea level. 
So, you know, if water rises at all, suddenly all the marshes around New Orleans uh, are underwater and the storm is getting worse and floods are getting worse. And the populations that are most affected by these floods and sea level rising uh, are the uh, are the poor black and brown communities in these cities, which is also where a lot of the uh, a lot of the football recruits come from. So if you have these sea levels rising and places are getting harder to live in or more expensive to live in because of the sea level, and the ones that are getting affected the most are also the populations where your recruits come from, uh, yeah, that's going to make your recruiting worse because they're going to have to leave. So that's it. Basically, people are getting flooded out is the simple way to put it. I was going to say, I mean, even on my coast now, I was just reading something. I want to say it was either on Forbes or Washington Post where they were talking about how all these businesses now are starting to view the desert area in the West Coast as kind of like a new place to set up shop. And while it makes a lot of sense economically, one of the issues that a lot of these companies and people who are migrating there as well are going to run into is that the West Coast is already having a very difficult time managing its water supply and how it distributes it to the citizens there. And these big businesses obviously are big energy users, they're big water consumers, et cetera, et cetera. And I do think that we are going to start reaching some really interesting tipping points, aside from, you know, fear of the fact that <laughs> our world might-, <laughs> might the, the world's on fire, but how is football gonna look? Exactly, you know? Um, but I do think that that's a real thing. And um, I know when Seth and I had Bud on, we talked about, you know, rising costs in places like California, starting to squeeze people out of this state and into the Arizonas and the Nevadas and the Washingtons and things like that. So even on the West Coast, you know, even if you take away things like severe storms, just the idea of like water shortages and different other types of supply shortages, these things are going to have maybe not an immediate effect, but definitely something gradually that is going to start changing the way that talent is dispersed around this country when it comes to college football. Yeah, like you, like you brought up California in particular, uh, and there, I've made a couple of graphs where it's just like how many how many kids are getting offered from uh, LA, for example, and you can see the and you can see this line just starting to drop around like 2015, 2016 ish because LA is stupid expensive to live, so you have to move. You want to eat and also have a roof over your head. So they moved to places like Phoenix or uh, Las Vegas, just mm-hmm. cheaper to live. Yeah, it's actually a really like rising one. So uh, a certain program that you should consider that just got uh, that is going to get hit with NCAA violations uh, is actually like a outside of that is probably an attractive program just because like Phoenix right now is pretty good, but probably in the next like ten ish years, five ten years, it'll be much more attractive just because LA people are moving there. Right. Uh, yeah, that was actually going to be one of my, it's like something that I, I've said this before on the podcast, but I had no clue about uh, Phoenix and Arizona until the election of uh, in November, last November, and how there was this big boom in, in that state. And I was always wondered how that's going to affect Arizona and Arizona State, because we see Arizona State, obviously, whatever is going to happen there with, with Herm notwithstanding, they've created something interesting there. Whereas on the other side of town or on the other side of the state, you have the Wildcats who I, they just can't, they just can't find any solid footing. Um, so like specifically Phoenix and the Arizona area, what are the trends that you've seen coming from that part of the country? So, so at the moment, the, at least in the, at least in the 2021-20 classes, uh, in the 2020 classes, you haven't really seen the big uptick in offers. 
2021, for obvious reasons, was a very weird class. So these are kids that graduated uh, earlier this month, uh, high school kids that graduate earlier this month. So they, if they got a senior season, it was maybe like four games or whatever. So that class got a little weird. And the confluence of the one-time transfer rules, offers are generally a little bit down last year. But uh, but yeah, you, have, you don't really see it in Phoenix right now. But but given the population shifts, uh, particularly in the in the middle class and lower and lower class people moving from Southern California into Phoenix to, to try and find jobs and have a roof of their head and live. Uh, you would expect that to go in the uptick in the next couple of years. You brought up Arizona. Uh, it's actually funny because you can, because one of the things I do is like, okay, so Arizona is in Arizona. You expect them to go to LA and Southern California and maybe try and dip into the farms of West Texas, but where, where are they going? But under Sumlin, of course, he's an A&M and Houston guy. So he was trying to get kids in Houston a whole lot. And, uh, I know you don't know jog, uh, American geography super well, Seth, but uh, Tucson and Houston are not close at all. So that was Hold it. On, I got to write this one down. Hold on. <laughs> I don't know how long the flight is off the top of my head. I've only been west of Mississippi like once, but they are not close. Uh, so I think that um, we kind of talked a little bit about through this, you know, kind of where the trends maybe are moving. But one thing that I want to kind of talk to you about is just where the hotspots are in general. You know, when I was in high school, the way it was always understood was like Los Angeles and then obviously California as a whole due to everybody being very centrally populated in Los Angeles. You have Houston, you have the Dallas Fort Worth area, you get your Miami's, um, <clears throat> New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and then kind of Louisiana in general, obviously Atlanta. Um, so all of these places, you know, have been established over time as kind of the recruiting hotbeds. Is that still the case or are, is your, are your maps kind of showing that maybe some of these hotspots are moving around or are some getting bigger than what they used to be? Are some losing their imprint? Like what, what are you seeing when you're looking at that data? Yeah. So, I mean, the, a couple of spots you mentioned, they're still the top, like the top five are still, uh, Dallas, the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex, Houston, Atlanta, LA, and Miami. Uh, those five are staying up there. Miami right now is still fine, although it's probably uh, inflate. This is a Richard Johnson talking point, but Miami is probably a little inflated by Florida being over recruited in general. And what I mean by that is, um, like every college, every Power Five staff has at least one Florida guy or one Miami guy, and because Florida has this uh, allure of Florida speed, which uh, I'm a bit skeptical of, honestly. Uh, you a head coach is going to say. Say if you're a Florida guy, hey, why aren't you getting me Florida speed? Why aren't you getting me Florida commits? So you have to go down there. You might reach for a kid who might be a high-end three-star, and you, you would reach for him because he's from Florida, but you might not do that if he's from like Birmingham, uh, Alabama, as an example. Uh, so those are the five. Those are the big five, I think. Uh, I, I can't count. <laughs> uh, Miami uh, and all the indicators really – so L.A. might go down – but it's also LA and it's still the hub of a bunch of different industries on the West coast. So it'll probably, it might dip a little bit, uh, but it'll stay roughly there. Uh, Miami has the climate change issue as we discussed earlier to open up the show uh, at, and Atlanta, Atlanta, Dallas, and Houston, uh, they all benefit from this new thing that's happening. Uh, the, I think it started in like oh, late, late nineties, early two thousands uh, the new great migration. Uh, so for those of you that don't remember your American history class from high school, uh, so the Great Migration initially was uh, when the former slaves from down south uh, moved from down south up to the northern cities like Chicago, New York, uh, and they also moved out west to like L.A. Uh, and then, and we've actually seen this reverse as 
in like the 90s-ish. So now those black families are moving back down south into places that are cheaper to live. Uh, Raleigh, Nashville, Atlanta, uh, the Texas cities. And so, and so these are the cities that we look and say, okay, these cities are going to be good. And I just want to get a quick thing out of the way. Uh, FBS football is a majority of black sport. So it is important that we pay attention to where black families are moving. But I do want to make, like a very, make it very explicit because you get some weirdos on Twitter. Uh, this isn't like a eugenics thing. Uh, it, sound, it sounds like a eugenics thing. This is not getting on from. I had someone, I had, I had someone tell me that Salt Lake City was a race-adjusted superstar. So, it, that's a <laughs> that's a take. <laughs> that is a take. Yeah, and we can talk about Salt Lake City later. But uh, but I want to make it explicitly clear: like there have been scientific papers written about this. Uh, the black population in America is not any more athletic than than any other population in America. Just the thing is, like, it's an access thing, really. That's really what drives who plays what sports and who you see. Like, like if you look over in Europe, a lot of the, like, this is a big thing in France. Uh, like, on the, a lot of national teams of the Mediterranean uh, countries, you'll have, like, a bunch of Arabian, the children of Arabian immigrants on the national teams because they're poor and the only sport they have, and one, they don't, so they don't have much upper mobility. One of those areas is, sport, is sports and soccer is really cheap to do. Same football and basketball take up the same role in America. Uh, if you want to see this in action, look at the, look at the NHL and look how expensive it is to buy hockey sticks and how expensive ice time is and so on and so forth. And then you start to make it out. And so that's why, that's why I'm bringing up, uh, black migrations in America, not because, uh, any weird things about shin bones being longer, uh, just because, uh, it's, it's an opportunity based thing. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, when we talk about these things to listeners, maybe you're not like hyper-focused on this end of college football. We can all kind of sound like armchair sociologists. And I, I get the idea of somebody is kind of rolling their eyes when we talk about these things, but it is a real consideration. Like, especially when you talk about migration from the Midwest back to the South or further off, further West into the West Coast, it is because cities like Detroit and Chicago and Cleveland and Philadelphia and all these other places are becoming maybe a little bit less industrious and maybe less, you know, um, appeasing for people who are working class. And that's where you see places like, as you mentioned, kind of the Memphises and the Nashvilles and Charlotte and, you know, your Norfolk Virginias and places like that, places where you could go get good football players before. It's not like they were, you know, deserts of talent, but they are growing in, in popularity and in viability for going put for going to build your program in a way that it was not prior. Um, I do think that it's really interested, interesting geographically, you know, as we talk about what's happening in the desert, as we're talking about things like, you know, climate change in the south and along the East Coast. Like, I do think that it's possible that we can start to see even more of a shift in the stratification of talent as a result. You know, I think that, and I, I think that there are going to be a lot of people who are fans of the sport who may be unhappy about the way that recruiting is going from a national perspective, but it is just going to be a fact of where people, where working class people are living. And because of that, what kind of access these schools have, you know, to talent within their radius. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was just agreeing. You can go ahead. Uh, so one of the things that I thought was super interesting that was like a, a like a kind of like a no shit moment uh, reading your stuff was you talk about basically in a sense the difference between Dallas and Houston in that 
one of the reasons why Dallas and Atlanta are similar and Houston, even though, like we said, they're on the top five, but I believe it has to do with the fact that those are two airline hub cities. And therefore it's, it's just easy to get to those cities rather than other cities. So therefore you're going to just buy, again, you just access, but in a different way, but you, you can access recruits in those cities a lot differently than you can other cities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when I started looking at this, like, as I, uh, I don't know if I mentioned it, I'm from, I'm from outside of Philly. So I'm a damn Yankee through and through. Uh, I kind of don't like barbecue because I haven't had any, that's how much of a Yankee I am. So I know very little about it. All right. That's the end of the podcast. Uh, thanks for coming <laughs> on. <laughs> uh, Philly is no, Philly is, I love Philly. Philly barbecue, not great. Uh, so, but so, so I know very little about Texas. So when I was looking at the state initially, I saw that you were seeing a lot of the out of state talents. So like the, when Alabama comes to Texas, when, uh, not LSU, uh, when the Florida schools come to Texas, when schools come to Texas, they all go to Dallas. And this was bugging the shit out of me uh, for the longest time while I was looking at it. Like, why are they coming to Dallas and not Houston? And uh, then you look at flights and flights to Dallas are just a lot cheaper than Houston. And if you have, and again, imagine you have a power five staff and you say, okay, uh, you D line coach, you're going to recruit Texas. Uh, he's not going to just walk to the state and suddenly he's in all every part of the state in El Paso to San Antonio, just be able to recruit everyone. No, he's going to go city by city. So he's going to fly where it's cheapest. Then he's going to drive around that little triangle. And then he's going to come back. So he's going to fly to Dallas. And then he's going to go to Houston. Then he's going to probably hit San Antonio and Dallas and uh, San Antonio and Austin in the same day or two, uh, just because there's not a lot of talent down there. And then he's going to go back to the Dallas. So even if you say he spends one day at each stop, he's going to spend two days in Dallas versus a day in Houston and a day in Austin and a day in San Antonio, just because that's where he's going to drive. So naturally, because you have to fly into Dallas, because it's really easy to get to Dallas, uh, you just spend more time there. And the same idea goes for uh, Atlanta. I think Dallas is the American Airlines hub and Atlanta is the Delta hub, I want to say. So it's, it's just easy to get to them. And it's really funny. Yeah, I think uh, one thing with this conversation I do want to do is continue to kind of zoom in and out. So, you know, kind of going from granular to maybe more of a 10,000 foot view. So one of the narratives that I do think is out there a little bit more now um, when we're talking about college football and recruiting is the idea that these hotspots are even more kind of national recruiting beds than what they were before. Like, I, I know I remember kind of looking at all of the frustration and irritation from like the University of Texas fans and Texas A&M fans when it seemed like Ohio State was sweeping a lot of their blue chip talent, especially like on the offensive side of the ball out of state. Um, is that supported by the data? Is it more national now when you talk about schools and who and where they're recruiting um, versus maybe what it was 10, 15 years ago? Uh, so it's so it's difficult because the reliable 247 so 247 I get my data from 247 sports and 247 starts being reliable around 2011 uh okay. so really have too far of a look back from what I can tell like kinda um so when people say national recruiting at least to me what I hear is okay so everyone's going everywhere all the time and uh like the Oregon or Washington State's gonna start getting Charlotte kids like no big deal Boston kids are gonna go to USC uh, dogs and cats will be best friends. Everything's pandemonium. That's not really how most programs act. Oregon, Stan Oregon acts like that because Oregon has Phil Knight money. Stanford acts like that because you have getting to Stanford. Uh, but really what most programs do is they have the, is they still have their footprint. 
Uh, so like if you're a school in the Southeast, you're going to stay in the Southeast most of the time. Just now, uh, nowadays you might have, you know, he might just jump over to like Dallas you might jump over to LA, get a quarterback, come back, but you're still primarily staying in your footprint. So national recruiting, I think is a bit of a misnomer, like super regional is a term I thought would sound cool in my head. Uh, so to answer your question about is the national recruiting happening more, I marginally, I think you might have a couple more programs who are legitimately going national, uh, Ohio State, Oregon, Stanford being some examples. Uh, you might have, and with the new TV deals that happened somewhat recently, you might have some sort of super regional, but it's not a very strong signal in the data. Like, like you'll have big 10 teams stay in the Midwest, but then also go a lot to Florida and Atlanta and Dallas if they have you know people down in Texas. Um, so it's interesting that you put it that way. And I do agree with you, even though I kind of posed the question to you the way that I did. I think that really what's happening now when we're having these conversations is that the top level of recruits, we're seeing the same big brand schools battling for them, where maybe it was a little bit more of, oh, you know, if he's a Miami kid and University of Miami, when they're really good, if they're in on that kid, we're probably not going to take that out to the end. I think that now what we're seeing is more of like, if Alabama, Clemson, and Georgia are battling it out, they're willing to take it all the way into February and try to get those extra visits and try to swing guys' as commitments. And I think that we just see a lot of this process happening more publicly now because of social media. So I don't think the idea of decommitments or reopening of, of recruiting and things like that, it's not new. I just think that we see the timeline stretched out a little bit more because it's in front of us. Lucha Report covers it, 247 reports on it, Rivals reports on it, it's all over ESPN. And we see it in front of our faces with social media, through Twitter and Instagram. So I do think that we kind of get our perspective warped. But when you say super regional versus national, that makes a lot of sense. And then really, what we're really talking about too at the end of the day is the way that these staffs are put together. Like one thing that I noticed as a USC fan at towards the end of the Pete Carroll era, it was very clear that they had guys on, on staff, really namely at Orgeron, who had an in in the Southeast. And now all of a sudden a guy like Joe McKnight can come play at USC because Ed Orgeron probably knows his high school coach or, you know, while he's out recruiting to Texas and USC has some money, he can say, hey, let me stretch this visit out to my home state. You know, we have talent over here and people trust me over there. I can go pull this kid and get him back. And if we get him to LA, some kid from the middle of Louisiana is going to step foot in LA and be like, oh my God, this is a place for me. Uh, so yeah, that I do think that that kind of tracks if people actually honed in on where guys are committing to. It's really more super regional than national. Yeah. So I, I will say your point, uh, I, I, you, uh, you mentioned like, oh, Miami kid's just going to stay in Miami. The idea of like locking down an area or you've seen the 30 for 30 making the state of Miami, uh, right. sort of a myth. Uh, that doesn't, right. Well, it's not a myth. It just doesn't happen anymore because of the more access and programs have lots of money to go wherever. Uh, the locking down your backyard is great to get your boosters going and get them to give you money. But in terms of like the material reality, not so much. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about kind of Big Ten country because, you know, talking about migration patterns, it's hard not to talk about like Deontay did earlier, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, which is again, big 10 country. If, if, if the football playing family, the football playing kids are moving out of those places, I guess, what does it mean? Not necessarily for Ohio state, you know, if we're talking about a super regional team, mm -hmm. but what does it mean to the other programs? Do you think in the big 10, 
if if those cities uh, are maybe not producing as much as they they have in the past? Yeah, so uh, recruiting does get more difficult. Um, uh, oh, a quick thing I want to mention is you see people acting like this is a, like a last fifteen years thing. Like NAFTA was signed in nineteen ninety four. This uh, this was a thing at least five years before I was alive. Uh, so <laughs> so this is this has been a thing. But basically, what the issues it rises for different uh, Big Ten programs is that you have to think. You have to, luckily they have a lot of money, so that makes things a little easier. Uh, but you just have to be a lot smarter about your resource allocation. Uh, some places have been bad, like Milwaukee. I don't think was ever great recruiting in the first place. So you either just have to, you know, either use your money really smartly uh, and say, okay, we have this big pile of money. Now we're going to go to the places that are closer. We're going to go to St. Louis. We're going to go to Louisville. We're going to go to Cincinnati. Cincinnati's actually pretty good recruiting. Uh, and we're going to focus more on these areas. Still have our footprint, but really, you know, try and stretch the limits as much as we can. Uh, or you just, or you just or Wisconsin, even though you have a bajillion dollars say, you know what? No, we're going to, you know, we'll send some offers down to Florida. We'll send some offers down to Atlanta. Uh, that's super regional thing we talk about, but mainly, you know, we're going to make sure that we get our big farm boys in Wisconsin and we're just going to develop the hell out of them and good for them. Just, it does impose when, when you have the money, but you choose to go that route, you just put a ceiling on your program somewhat. Uh, okay. And um, wanted to uh, kind of get you out of here with, with this because you are writing or you've written an article i guess by the time this comes out uh you can go to coast coast scouting um dot com and you can find your new article which is on what does and what does not matter in getting recruits so can you explain you know uh what you found while trying to write this uh write this piece yeah yeah so what this piece is about is from like a program level what matters and getting good recruiting classes uh, and the results are basically uh, like B Florida State, or uh, and that's kind of it. Uh, it. Looking at recruiting data sometimes is a little depressing uh, because it's incredibly stable year over year. Like if you have a coaching staff, uh, and you know how he did last year in like his second year, uh, you know where he has a full cycle, talk to juniors coming up, and then gets them to get them to commit. Uh, he's probably not going to do like that much better or that much worse the next year. Uh, so that's like really stable year over year. So any progress is going to be really slow. Uh, then you say, okay, well, maybe if you win a lot, uh, that'll help attract better recruits uh, at any level of sport. And uh, not really. Uh, the way I'll phrase it is this. Like if you're Oklahoma and you're winning, you're consistently winning kind of get 10 or more games a year. Yes, that will help your recruiting. You will attract better classes on average than if you don't. But if you're Indiana or some other program that's like routinely in that five to seven, seven to five sort of range, and you string together a couple of nine and three or eight and four seasons, it's probably not going to help you that much. Uh, Cause there's a lot of other programs that can do that. Like Purdue can pop off for a little bit. Louisville can pop off for a little bit. Uh, or you think, okay, well maybe if we develop really well and get, we get a bunch of kids to the league, then we can use that in our pitch. Like, well, you're probably not putting that many unless you're one of these blue blood programs. Uh, so if Louisville puts like seven, uh, puts like seven kids over a two year period into the NFL, well, Boston college put four, that's not that much less. So that's not really much of a pull. So the, so in terms of like what matters, like what programs can do from a macro level, uh, to try and attract better recruits is, uh, like be Florida state, I guess, <laughs> um, or one of these blue blood programs. I have like 17, I as I define them, it's kind of arbitrary, but it's basically like there's a small subset of teams 
which get a ridiculous amount of talent, no matter what they do. Uh, and then there's everybody else. Uh, so if you're in that everybody else, the answer is uh, don't get fired so you can get that, get the momentum rolling. Uh, be smart with your resource allocation like we talked with, with some Big Ten schools. Uh, and I guess hope Phil Knight gives you lots of money. Uh, it's, yeah. Like, uh, I, and I bring up Florida State continually because just to emphasize how big of this recruiting gap is for these for this like small subset of programs. So Florida State has won more than like seven games since 2016. Uh, their worst recruiting classes were 2019 and 2020 when they had like six and nine uh, blue chip recruits, so four or five stars. Uh, and they've had, and since 2019, they've had like 22 or 23 total blues, blue chips. Uh, if you go to Utah, who's been a much more successful program since 2015, they've had 20 blue chips. So it's just, it's not fair. <laughs> like it's, it's just not fair. All right. So let's stick in Utah. Let's talk about a city in Utah that I really like. Uh, that is Salt Lake city. Uh, no, we're not going to get into that. Uh, I just, um, Actually, we, we, we can't, we can really quick, like really quickly. Uh, okay. Go Salt Lake city. Okay. Salt Lake city. Uh, why, why is football in Salt Lake city? Uh, good. Even though they have lots of white people, one, shut up Two. <laughs> Uh, to uh there's a, there's a pretty decent sized polynesian population uh, yes. in the city and uh, latter-day saints population in, in utah and the polynesian latter-day saints community in utah is yeah. pretty big yeah and why the mormons decided to um uh to uh mission to send their missions out to the pacific islands instead of uh, other uh places other places in the world uh, is a very funny story that we will not share on the podcast <laughs> um and uh, also there's uh, I, this is a little pet theory of mine. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, when, so history of the Mormon church, uh, they were like kind of out, like outside the American, like the center and they didn't like that. So they tried it. So they, so they, in like in late 1800s, early 1900s, they tried to do things to like make themselves more American. One of those was giving a ton of money to the boy scouts and like every Mormon boy had to be a boy scout. Uh, football is part of that. So it's just kind of a more ingrained part of Mormon culture that a lot of people, a lot of kids play football and BYU is right there. And if you're not a LDS, you're not going to go to BYU. So, you know, yeah. So that's Salt Lake City is a race adjusted superstar. What a quote. Ridiculous term. Wait, let me put that um, one on Instagram. That's what we're going to click right now. It's actually my Tinder bio. <laughs> um, okay. You know what? I, I, I'm going to give you the floor with. Is there like another city that was actually, that was super interesting. Is there another city that you, that you're like, this is the wildest kind of city that you've had to look up because you, you're seeing something interesting. I know I'm putting you on the spot. Here. And let me, um, and let me add to that just in case you may be yeah. able to pick a city. Yeah. Is there a program maybe that is in the mm. vicinity of a growing hotbed that you think may have an opportunity to maybe kind of grow its potential? Yeah. Okay. So I'll go the, I'll go the fun cities first. Uh, so, uh, this is more of a minutia thing. So if you go down South in a lot of areas, like the best high school programs are all public schools, uh, like South Lake Carroll down in Texas and some other schools, I'm forgetting the top of my head. Uh, all of them are public, but if you go to the East, uh, in like New York and Philly, uh, they're all Catholic schools. They're all these private Catholic schools that can recruit kids. Uh, so that's really funny. And you see a similar thing in Detroit, uh, Detroit, we would think because of the new migration, they're recruiting get worse. Actually, it's not, uh, because, because of the families and population that is still in Detroit and Detroit has this like weird, like charter magnet school system where basically uh, coaches can scout like 
peewee and middle school kids and say, okay, well, all the best ones, they're going to go to MLK and Bellevue and uh, a couple other ones I'm forgetting off the top of my head. So Detroit recruiting has actually been really consistent when you expect the drop off like somewhere like Chicago. Uh, so I, so that's some interesting tidbits. Oh, and in Texas, I'm going all over the place and I'm sorry. Uh, Texas, they have this thing with their high school coaches where you have to like suck up to them. Like the Texas high school, uh, athlete, Texas high school coaches association. Uh, basically they have this like doctrine where like part of it is like, okay, uh, coaches be involved in your kids recruitment. So, you know, so they're informed of what offers they can commit to what they can't commit to, uh, you know, keep the recruiters in check that want to give non-committable offers. Cause that's shitty to kids. Uh, and the other part of it is, uh, recruiters, please suck up to us. Please talk about us when you talk about your Texas recruits. A pretty please, oh, please be nice to us or you can't talk to our kids. Uh, so that's just a funny thing. So when people talk about playing politics in Texas, uh, that's what it is. Uh, in terms of uh, programs that are close to good areas, uh, an area I'm really excited about is uh, Charlotte. Uh, Charlotte and Raleigh, they're looking good. Uh, the only thing wrong with Raleigh is it's not very big and there's nothing really with Charlotte. And so those areas I feel really good about. So those... Uh, so UNC in particular, because uh, they don't quite have the academic standards that Duke or Wake Forest have. Uh, Clemson doesn't really focus on this area. Clemson just goes to Atlanta and wherever else they want because they're, fuck you, they're Clemson. Uh, oh, are we going to have to put that out? <laughs> oh, you're good. Okay. Uh, uh, and Nashville also is really good. I'm excited about Nashville. So Vanderbilt, uh, if they can't, it seems like they're pumping money into the program. Uh, that could be exciting for them. Uh, and Tennessee, if they ever stop just getting in their own way. That could be a really big boon for them. Cool. Um, I guess um, I, I, I gave you a little bit of shout outs before where you write, but uh, yeah, just in general, tell the people where they can find you. Yeah. So you can find uh, my writing on coasttoastscouting.com. Uh, if you, if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, which I don't because it's a bunch of terrible stuff. Uh, and some okay funny shit posts. Uh, it's Connor MCQ5, uh, Connor with one N, C O N O R. Uh, and that's uh, that's, that's really it. Cool. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on. I appreciate this. It was a very, very insightful conversation, I think, about something that uh, that I think people who listen to this podcast really want to really want to know. Yeah. So, thanks, it was for a lot coming. of fun. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun.